I can tell you without question, anybody that has the opportunity to dive in a sub and to go down and see the deep sea will change their perception of the ocean forever. And if you weren't an advocate for the ocean, you'll become one. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. Special interview for all of you today with the founder of a submersible company. Uh, for many of us, we first learned about these private submersibles with a disaster back in June, uh, just down by the Titanic. Well, Patrick Leahy joins me for a really fascinating, candid conversation about the state of ocean exploration what went wrong down there, his warnings to the folks at OceanGate about their experimental design. Leahy happens to be the founder and president of Triton Submarines. Uh, they've made more than two dozen personal subs for sale. And he talks about the standards and guidelines that his company and others ascribe to that the folks over at OceanGate uh, with their Titan sub did not. So it's a conversation that looks at the impact of what took place in June down by the Titanic on the state of ocean exploration, whether additional rules are needed here. And we talk about why people feel the need to actually personally go down to the Titanic and explore the ocean floor. It's a fascinating conversation. He's been an ocean explorer for decades. He talks about what goes into it. What can be seen down there and just the amount we still don't know about what is just below the surface here on Earth. That in some cases we know more about space than what is happening in our oceans. The majority of Earth is covered in ocean. And we go into why exploration is necessary. Uh, some of the science that's being discovered now about the potential for even a cure for cancer. Being down there, you'll get a bit of that. But I think all of you will really enjoy this conversation. I received quite an education as I spoke to him. And really, it put into perspective what took place in June, what went wrong, and just the major differences out there that not all these submersibles are the same. He compared it to someone who tries to build a plane in their garage versus a Boeing jet that you might fly commercially. We also talk about the impact of climate change on the oceans and, frankly, what all these explorers are looking for uh, and some of the stories they're trying to share with their exploration using his submarines around the world. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium. If you like what we're doing here at Mo News, you want to support independent journalism, support this account, support the five podcasts, five newsletters, and the Instagram feed that we put out, and gain access to extra content, answers to your questions, the weekly Mo News quiz, early access, and exclusive content on the members-only podcast feed and the members-only Instagram account. You can get all that for just $7 a month month or $70 a year. That is two free months with the annual package. We also are offering right now with the code MoNews trial, a free 30-day trial. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right, everyone, with that, here's today's conversation. I'm joined here by Patrick Leahy. He is the co-founder and president of Triton Submarines. It's a company based out of Sebastian, Florida, that builds and sells private submersibles for research and deep ocean exploration. Patrick, for many of us, private submersibles, we were not familiar with it until the summer. And quite an introduction we got. You know, and, and to that point, you know, this is actually one of the things that we struggle with. You know, the ocean has already always sort of taken a backseat to people's interest in things like space exploration. And as a consequence, a lot of people don't know about the things that are happening in the ocean space, either because they don't get the publicity or they don't have the interest. Of course, you know, nothing's going to capture a headline like, you know, dead people on Titanic, unfortunately. Uh, Patrick, we'll get into all things Triton, but I want to start with the beginning here. I understand your love of the ocean started very early. It certainly did. And it continues to this day. And actually, it's probably the primary driver for, for what I do and why I do it. It began for me when I first uh, saw the ocean at the age of about seven. My family, and I grew up in Canada, probably about as far away from the ocean as you could get. I'd never seen water other than rivers and creeks and lakes. But when I arrived in the island of Barbados at the age of seven, my dad was building houses down there and I saw the ocean. And we were completely smitten, myself and my, my brother and, I, you know, and, and my, my younger sister. I think uh, we didn't know really what to make of it. Called it the river, 
<laughs> um, you know, because that's the only thing we could relate to it. But it was extraordinary. The warmth of it, you know, the clarity of the water, the number of beautiful things that you could see in it. And uh, it left an indelible impression. I spent the next three years in Barbados. And it was during that time that I developed this fascination with the ocean and was determined to continue uh, interacting with it in some form or another. I didn't know exactly how yet. So you fall in love and then that leads you to diving. <laughs> it does. And a few years later, we came back to Canada and I was determined to learn how to scuba dive. I wanted to be able to stay underwater and explore more. And so when I was uh, 13, about 1975, my father was kind enough, my mother and father were kind enough to indulge me. They let me take a diving course. You had to be 13 at that time to, to learn how to dive. And so I did, and the effect that it had was significant. I, I just fell in love with it. I just devoured everything I could about it, read every book. And at that time, it was there were some exciting things happening in the ocean space. And for us in Canada, there's a guy named Dr. Joe McGinnis who was doing this stuff up in the Arctic with sub glue, and he had written a book called Underwater Man. And that book, uh, once again, left an indelible impression on me. The idea of spending time underwater, maybe one day living underwater, all that sort of stuff really uh, appealed to me and, and uh, you know, just encouraged me to continue to pursue an oceanic career. So how do you then get into the private submarine submersible space? Take me on your journey, so to speak. So that was a circuitous, uh, circuitous journey for sure. Yeah. As I finished uh, high school and much to my parents' chagrin, I told them I, I didn't want to go to university, that in fact, I wanted to go to a commercial diving school. And I think that that news was not, you know, uh, warmly received. Uh, but I just was determined to, to work uh, underwater. And I thought, you know, the simplest and fastest way to do that was to go to a commercial diving school, learn how to work as a air mixed gas and saturation diver and work on the oil and gas platforms as a, as a construction and an oil field diver. So I did that and I had an opportunity to dive in a sub. I think it was about 1983. I was 21 and, you know, I keep talking about indelible impressions, but that experience, which was fantastic, you know, the idea that I could get in a craft, go down thousands of feet, explore, accomplish a task, you know, do, do whatever job was needed, then come right back up and get out. Well, there was something powerfully liberating about that because as a diver, you're often subjected to punitive periods of decompression. Could be could be hours or could be days, depending on how deep you're diving and how long you've stayed at depth. Explain to the non-divers out there how, how that works, the recovery period, the pressure. What are you experiencing down there? Well, so when you dive, you know, your body absorbs the inert gas that's in the mix that you're breathing. In, you know, in the case of air, the inert gas is, is uh, nitrogen. And, and over time, and depending on depth, the amount of inert gas that you absorb increases with depth. When you come back up, actually, the best analogy that I can think of is, is, is imagine a, a Coke bottle, you know, that's got a cap on it. And, you know, you look at it and you don't see any bubbles. You know, it's clear. Well, it's dark, but it's clear and there's no bubbles. But when you pop the cap off the, the Coke, you know, suddenly you, bubbles will will come out of solution and that's carbon dioxide. But your blood is the same. If you're if you're diving and you're diving at any sort of significant depth, your body takes in the nitrogen. It's it's absorbed into your bloodstream. And when you come back to the surface, that nitrogen has to come out of solution and come out through your uh, you know, your, your respiratory system. If you come up too quickly and bubbles sort of pop in, you know, sort of appear in your bloodstream, uh, it can have catastrophic consequences. They can lodge in your joints and give you pain, or they can even give you uh, nervous system uh, impacts like paralysis or, or death. So it's very important when you decompress, as you come back to the surface, that you observe a schedule. And quite simply, the, the longer you stay at depth, and, and the deeper you go, the longer you have to decompress up to a point where you, you know, beyond a certain point, there's a thing called saturation, which we would use to our advantage. You, you stay down long enough 
and your tissues get saturated. And it doesn't matter whether you stayed there for 12 hours or you stayed down there for three weeks, the amount of decompression that you have to do to come back to the surface is the same. So given all that, that was one of the reasons for your excitement uh, related to submarine technology, basically cutting all of that out. Exactly. My, my first dive was on a blowout preventer, maybe not the most exciting place to dive. To me, it was. It was thrilling. But I went down to, I think, around 1,400 feet by myself in a little one-man sub called a Mantis. Did this job. I think I had to go down and look at the bull, uh, the bullseye, maybe cut a cable or something like that. Wait, but for, for the non-oil uh, <laughs> rig drillers out there, explain what you were looking at. Yeah, so... When you're doing offshore oil and gas related stuff and in this type of stuff we were doing is called wildcatting, uh, there's a thing called a blowout preventer that sits on the seafloor and it's big. It's like apartment building size structure that sits on the seafloor and there's all kinds of things on that structure that they want to keep an eye on and that you can inspect. Now, when it's in 1400 feet of water, you know, your capacity to inspect it is somewhat limited as a diver because of extreme depth. But in a human-occupied vehicle, like the one I was in, you can go down there, buzz around for hours, come right back up, jump out, and have a, have a steak lunch, if you're so inclined. But the, the, the reality, I mean, the, the thing that was so liberating about that was this idea that I could go to such an extreme depth, and, and that's really not that extreme. You know, the vehicles we build today go to extreme depth, but being able to come right back up and get out with none of the punitive decompression that is normally associated with traditional diving, none of the physical limitations that you have as a diver. You know, you're sitting in this environment that is very quiet, very serene. You're completely protected from the forces of the ocean. And yet you can be in this incredibly difficult environment, but you can be there very safely. So I I decided uh, together with a business partner of mine in the, I guess it was in the early 90s, that we could build some deeper diving subs that would offer people an opportunity to see a part of our ocean that they couldn't see without being in a craft like the ones we were talking about. But it took us about 12 years to finally secure our first order. There was a lot of resistance uh, to it. And to your point Why? in the early part, well, I think people by and large have a fear of the ocean almost. It's this sort of dark, scary place. And in many cases, people growing up being afraid of it, rather than I was lucky enough to see how beautiful. Was that just from Jaws? The Jaws well, came to us? It's, it's from the films that we see. It's from, yeah. you know, folklore, myth. And, and we had to sort of beat back all of that, you know, in an effort to try and change the conversation and to get people excited by the idea that in a appropriately designed, engineered, and built human-occupied vehicle, you could dive into the ocean, even to great depths, and do it in absolute safety. And I think it took a while to finally sort of break into that market and to sell our first sub. It required a really pioneering kind of first customer who embraced the idea and took a chance that we weren't crazy, provided us with the opportunity to build our first vehicle. And once we did, people started to recognize largely through him and through the things that he was experiencing and the conversations that resulted that these machines were extraordinary. They were remarkable. They, they did indeed allow you to have these wonderfully interesting adventures and to see this beautiful part of our world that was essentially cut off for most of us. When it comes to building submarines, what sort of guidebook is there uh, and to what extent, Patrick, are you, you know, did you have to basically uh, develop your own technologies, your own techniques? You know, because it goes back, I mean, obviously the military and there's been larger submarines for, for years, right? But when it comes to what you guys have been building. Well, the guidebook essentially comes from the certification agencies. And there are a number of them out there. Uh, you know, I won't bother to list them, but, but the certification agencies develop rules for human-occupied vehicles. Initially, because they were being used commercially, they were taking people, human beings into the deep sea. There had to be rules governing what was safe and what wasn't safe. And so they, they established these rules early on. And 
like like anything, they're dynamic. So they're changing. They're evolving. These are international organizations. These are private groups. No, these are international organizations. You know, think of it like, you know, the FAA. These are the, the groups that we have to. You now, these certification agencies, the primary ones are American Bureau of Shipping, uh, used to be Det Norsky Veritas, Germanischer Lloyd or DNV slash GL. Uh, Lloyd's Registry of Shipping, Bureau Veritas, there's uh, NKK in Japan. There's there's a number of them. There's the Russian Registry, uh, you know, the Italian RENA. But the two most sort of prominent and I would say most uh, prolific uh, certification agencies in our little world, which is, you know, human occupied vehicles, uh, would be ABS and, and DNV, certainly. And we work a lot with those agencies. And those rules have been developed over six decades. And, and what's interesting, and I think very important for us to, to cover in this conversation, I'm sure we'll get to it, is that accredited subs, certified subs, subs that go through this very arduous, time-consuming, thorough, and expensive accreditation process, have a 50-year track record of perfect safety. And to me, you know, that means they are, you know, there is no safer form of transportation, if you can call a sub transportation, I suppose. It's not really for getting you from A to B. But the fact is, the rules that govern the safe design, engineering, manufacturing and operation of human occupied vehicles are very highly evolved and developed and incredibly thorough and wide ranging. And as a consequence, when we craft a sub that gets that certification from an independent third party certification agency, it means you can use that sub. First of all, it's designed to do what it's supposed to do, but it's going to be safe and people can use it and they can use it with confidence. And, and that is something that I think had we insisted on it, uh, you know, the, the, the ocean gate tragedy would have never happened. Yeah. But anyway, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. No, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Cause you know, I think it's important to note, you know, we didn't know much. Most of the public didn't know much about the private submersible market that these even existed or that there were rules and regulations, certifications, any of that until we watched the events unfold, uh, this summer. I imagine this is a sm relatively small business. How far back were you first made familiar with what they were up to at Titan? And what was your perspective on, on what they were doing? Well, first of all, you know, it's very important to understand, I think, for the audience to know that there is a stark difference between an experimental craft, which is what that was, that meets no internationally recognized standards, has not been subjected to any type of peer review or third party review and approval process, and the subs that are made by legitimate builders in our industry who submit our design, engineering, calculations, and everything to this time-consuming, arduous, thorough, and expensive process. There is no comparison. It's a little bit like comparing, you know, that airplane that somebody throws together in their garage, and then they fly into a mountaintop and a 787 Dreamliner, where Everything that goes into that Dreamliner, everything that goes into an accredited vehicle has to go through this process where the materials have to be validated before they can be fashioned into parts. The parts that are made from that material, once it's been validated, have to conform to drawings and tolerances. They then get assembled into assemblies or, or equipment that gets then tested and validated long before people ever get into this thing. We jokingly say when the paperwork weighs as much as the submarine, then you're done. And and there is some truth to that. While it's less paperwork today than it, than it used to be, it is a very thorough uh, process. And so the OceanGate program, you know, emerged in the in the mid sort of maybe around 2015 or so. I had heard they purchased a sub that I was involved in building. Actually, they ended up buying two subs that I was involved in building. Now, these subs were certified subs. They were built according to those internationally recognized certification standards that I was referring to before. And as such, they were safe and they remain safe. And you can dive in those subs and dive in them safely. But this new thing, which was originally called Cyclops or Cyclops 2, I should say, because they renamed one of the subs that I was involved in building, which was called Lula originally, and they called it Cyclops 1. Not a great name, but okay. Um, I actually preferred Cyclops too, 
to the new name because it's uncomfortably close to our name. Um, but that's where the, the closeness ends because their approach and, and their sort of attitude about certification is starkly different uh, to mine and to that of others in our industry who, who build certified vehicles. And th that approach was they believed mistakenly, I might add, that the certification agencies, you know, the accreditation process was somehow an impediment to innovation, which couldn't be further from the truth. I can tell you, and ironically, at the time this monstrosity was being created by OceanGate, we were building the deepest diving, fully accredited, the deepest diving sub in the world, and the only sub that it's been certified to dive to full ocean depth. And we were doing it hand in glove with the certification agencies. Why? Because without involving them in it, you cannot be assured that the craft that you eventually create is one that people are going to be confident to dive in. So to me, the importance of certification was one of the things that I insisted upon with my client as an essential deliverable because I didn't just want to build a sub that was intended to go down and set a record and make a single dive. I wanted to build something that people could use and they could use repeatedly and that scientists and explorers and filmmakers wouldn't be afraid to get in the thing. So there's these certification agencies. You can go through the process, which is what you guys do, which is what they did not do with, with uh, their craft. But if you don't go through that process, these people are still basically able to put their craft out there. There's no one, you know, uh, uh, pulling them over. Sure. Just like you can build an, an aircraft in your garage, you know, out of, you know, grab a lawnmower engine and, you know, whatever. And, you know, off you go. No one's going to stop you. Uh, but I think the thing that's important is that, the certification agencies and that certification process is really all we need to be assured that a piece of equipment that's going to carry human beings into the deep sea is safe. And that's why I'm saying if we insist on certification, you know, independent third party accreditation of everything that's going to carry human beings into the deep sea, that tragedy could have been avoided. Now, I think there were things done that allowed them to kind of you know, skirt through and get out there. And you're right, in international waters, uh, you know, without being under the watchful eye of any sort of specific authority, and and if you, you know, you cleverly do certain things that allow you to, to skirt those rules, then you can you can get away with it. But, but why get away with it? You know, what is the point? I, you know, when I say that I think that the certification agencies are the opposite of being, you know, obstructive, now, I think that if you want to create innovation and you want to do it in a responsible manner, involving the certification agencies is the best way to achieve that. We were doing something that had never been done before, and we were doing it with the certification agencies. And by the way, the rules didn't exist for the craft we were creating, but they were being developed as we created it. And they were being developed with a whole bunch of people much smarter than me overseeing what we're doing and making sure that it was being done according to a set of rules and in a way that was responsible and met all of the, the type of uh, sensible requirements that were, were, um, were a part of ensuring that it would be safe. One of the questions many people had, I mean, we're all familiar, you know, almost everyone's familiar with the Titanic story, was, uh, what's, first of all, have you been down there to the Titanic? Yeah, several times. What can be gleaned at this juncture from going down there. Make the case, I guess, to those of us who, all right, you know, I've, I've learned the history, I've seen the film, you know, I've seen some of the pictures taken from the various trips down there, potentially the trip that you were on. Explain to me from the explorer's perspective what that's like. Well, I think from the standpoint of, you know, reasons to dive on Titanic, I think curiosity, I suppose, would have to top that list. It's, it's sort of like, you know, why continue to climb Everest? I mean, we've done it, right? You know, you're not going to break a new record now. It's been done thousands of times. But I think there's a sense of maybe personal achievement in the case of climbing Everest. But the idea of being able to, you know, put our eyeballs on an iconic ship like Titanic, you know, to see it with our own eyes, to experience, you know, looking at it um, is part of what makes us human. You know, I think we're curious beings, the idea of, being able to see something and experience it firsthand is powerful. It's why, 
you know, we don't, you know, have bird watchers using drones, you know, they like to walk through the forest and see the birds and hear them and, and, and watch what's happening in real time. You know, our capacity to drink in information in real time with, with our eyes, which I think 90% of our sensory information comes in through our eyes is powerful. And it's, uh, it's something that stays with you. One of the, one of the great cases for why we continue to use and need human occupied vehicles is because of how powerfully they affect you. I, I can tell you without question, anybody that has the opportunity to dive in a sub and to go down and see the deep sea will, will change their perception of the ocean forever. And if you weren't an advocate for the ocean, you'll become one. How so? Tell me about it as somebody who's been thousands and thousands of time in the deep sea. Well, I think it's, it's like, uh, it, it begins with the fact that we misunderstand it. For the most part, most of us do not know how beautiful, how extraordinarily beautiful uh, the ocean is, and in particular, the deep ocean. You know, many of us have put on a mask and swam over a coral reef and, and, and looked at how, how colorful and pretty it is. Some of us have been fortunate enough to dive and, and get quite a bit deeper and see some, some even more interesting things. But when you get down into the deep sea and you're seeing things that you couldn't otherwise uh, see, and in many cases, you know, we have this perception of what we think it's going to be like, oh, it's this dark, scary place. People often say, oh, there's nothing to see down there. After you get down 150 feet, there's, there's nothing to see. Couldn't be further from the truth. The deep sea is an extraordinary part of our planet. It's beautiful and it's vast. And by the way, largely unexplored too. When it's like 70 or 80% of earth, right? It is. And, and, you know, when you think for a minute that the average depth of the ocean is 4,000 meters, 13,000 plus feet, that's telling you something, you know? So if you've limited your diving to, I don't know, 150 feet or, or something, you know, or even, even, you know, a, a few hundred meters, you know, to the sort of near coastal regions, you really haven't seen a lot of the ocean. You haven't to be like if you owned a house, just going down a couple of stairs into the basement, but never actually going into the basement, wondering what's down there. You know, what if you have this incredible series of things to see a bunch of rooms you've never walked into and, and, and interesting things to find down there. And I believe the, the ocean is not only a fascinating place, but there's a lot of things for us to still learn about uh, our own planet by exploring the deep sea, you know, because it occupies such a huge part of our world. I think we have an obligation to be uh, exploring it more and studying it more. Back to Titan and Ocean Gate. Yes. Uh, I, I know that one of the people that we lost there, P.H. Nargelet, was a friend of yours. Yeah, he was a good friend, dear friend. I mean, I knew him for more than two decades. And actually, you know, P.H. accompanied us on our historic five deeps expedition where we traveled and dived to the deepest points in each of the five oceans. And I actually encouraged P.H. to get involved in the project early on because of his, you know, really unprecedented background, brilliant man and had done so much in, in the, the deep sea and very highly regarded. And to this day, I, I wonder, you know, why I wasn't able to talk him out of going out there. Yeah. I was going to ask about that, given what you were witnessing. I mean, listen, I, I worked at CBS news for a number of years, uh, and watched their story where they were noting the video game controllers and parts from the hardware store and the experimental yeah. material. Did in conversations with PH were you like, listen, I don't know if this thing is up to snuff. You know, honestly, I, I, I couldn't have been more candid and more forth, you know, more outspoken in my condemnation of, of that craft or in his in, in in my kind of surprise that he wanted to go out there. But I, I, I know from having spoken with PH that there were, I think, a couple of reasons he did. And, and I think the first is just the kind of person that PH was. He believed by being out there, by getting involved in their operation, he might be able to help them make it safer, you know, help them avoid a tragedy, which is kind of ironic when you think about what transpired. And I believed in his in his heart, he 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 thought that that was the case. But in addition, PH had a fascination with Titanic that 
I don't know I've I've ever met anybody else you know, except for maybe Jim that was as as fast Jim being James Cameron that's right yeah and, and you know I think BH was so enamored by that wreck and the opportunity to see it again that I think he was willing to overlook the downside the safety risks and and maybe he trivialized them or or didn't didn't you know well, you have to be a certain level of risk taker to go down there on a daily basis, even in the safest of crafts, yeah, right? Not really, no? though. I, I would I would disagree. I think that that is the popular belief that oh my god, you know. In fact, that's one of the myths we have to fight against: is these things must be incredibly complicated, very dangerous. You know, Christ, you get in one, and there's a better than average chance you're not going to get back out again. You know, you're really taking an unacceptably high risk. And, and that, by the way, is perpetuated by films, even documentaries where you're watching a film. And I sometimes see the films and I laugh because they say, oh, well, you know, these guys are running out of oxygen. They're lost. They don't know what they're going to find. And it's to build drama. It's to make the, the documentary more compelling and, you know, I guess get more people to watch it. But the reality is these vehicles are incredibly safe. They're much safer than the car that you get in every day. And you don't think anything about doing that. It's actually, it's kind of amazing. We have this discussion on a completely separate front when it comes to these self-driving cars, right? That they're rolling out across the U.S. And I'm like, listen, you know, on an annual basis, 45,000 Americans die in car accidents. And, you know, like I said, human occupied vehicles, like the ones we build here at Triton Submarines that are fully accredited, have a 50, five, zero, 50 or five decades uh, track record of perfect safety. And people say, oh, well, they kind of blew that. No, they didn't, because that was not an accredited vehicle. That was not a sub that was fit for human occupation. That was not a sub that had gone through what I considered to be the essential requirements of validating it for human occupied use. It's been a few months now, and you know, you sort of you sort of led me there. What has been the impact? I mean, there's public perception, there's policymaker perception, yeah. There's the potential customers of your products perception. If you can kind of take me through the impact of OceanGate on the state of your business, well, it's significant, no question, because as you say, people don't discriminate, so people perished in this sub. And as a consequence, that must mean subs are dangerous. And, and by the way, I'll extrapolate that out, Patrick. There was, you know, the recent launches, the space tourism, you know, sure. thing we're watching right now with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, et cetera. And there was the most recent launch, I think, with Richard Branson's, you know, team. And it was interesting, the notes I was getting from, uh, you know, people who follow our various accounts being like, wait, didn't they learn anything from the Titanic thing? Like, why are they going into space? And, and, and in people's minds you know, sort of experimental exploration. Mm. It's all in one big bucket. That's right. And, and the fact is, uh, the stuff that we do is not experimental. Uh, we hold ourselves to an extraordinarily high standard. And as we should, because I take the responsibility that we're building crafts, building machines that people get into and go down thousands, if not tens of thousands of feet. Everybody here recognizes that that means, you know, you cannot take risks. You cannot do something that hasn't been tested and proven and been reviewed by people other than, you know, those who might design and engineer them. You have to make sure the subs are being kept and, and maintained appropriately, that the people who operate them are appropriately trained. All of that, by the way, is under the purview of the certification, the classification societies. And so as long as you insist on that accreditation, you know, you can be assured that the, the machine is, is safe. And you're right, though, in terms of impact. I mean, number one, I had a number of clients who contacted me and thanked me for warning them about diving on in the Ocean Gate. Uh, oh, they had they had heard from Ocean Gate. Well, they, they had considered going in mm -hmm. some cases and. We're, we're grateful that they didn't go. And, and my conversation with anyone who cared to ask was that it was my opinion that, you know, if you're going to make a dive into the deep sea, that you should not do it in an experimental vehicle. And so fortunately, you know, many people followed that advice and listened. PH, unfortunately, was not one of them. And, and uh, I think that that so, so anyway, going back to the question, which is, you know, has there been an impact? 
certainly one of the impacts is is that. Another impact is people who don't discriminate are thinking, geez, you know, we even had customers saying, hey, look, you know, I don't know, is this thing safe? And we have to help re-educate our own clients that, you know, we are not the same, that we, you know, the, the, the craft that you own is, is not experimental. It has been through the mill and it has been m- tested multiple times and is, and by the way, certification doesn't just start with design and engineering and go through to the point you finish it and then you hand the keys to somebody and then say you're off on your own. It stays with the sub throughout its entire lifetime. It's, it's a, a thing that's renewed every year. So they're retesting these vehicles. Absolutely. And, and there are you know specific requirements that you have to follow. So there's daily checks, weekly checks, monthly checks, quarterly checks, annual checks. And then there's special periodical surveys that happen every three years. And it doesn't just, as I said, it's not just confined to the vehicle itself and, the, and how it's being maintained, but even the people who are operating it. And are they appropriately trained and experienced? So all of that, when you, when you think about it, it's, it's like you know, when you climb onto that 787 Dreamliner and whatever airline, I mean, use 787 Dreamliner, you know, whatever, a commercial aircraft, you get in that. And, you know, there's an expectation that not only is that piece of equipment being maintained by people who understand it and are using the right equipment and are following, you know, a manufacturer's recommended preventative maintenance schedule, but the people who are piloting it, operating it, understand it at a high level and, you know, know what to do if something goes wrong or if there's a problem. That is the same thing that we do in human-occupied vehicles that are certified. I'm talking to Patrick Leahy here of Triton Submarines. We're talking about impact of OceanGate. Um, we, you're talking a bit about that. Curious as to the impact, the conversations you've had with you know various government officials, policymaking, international bodies, because this obviously the search for this took an enormous amount of resources and attention, and I imagine that you know governments don't have to deal with that in the future. Yeah, I mean it's uh, again unfortunate that uh, it was necessary for for that to happen. Of course, you can understand why everybody rallied to the cause, including many of my clients, including us. Everybody thought if there's any possibility that, you know, these people are still alive, that, that, I mean, we had people flying things in by aircraft and private planes. We were getting everything we could to St. John's, you know, when, when human beings are involved and, and, you know, there's a possibility that, that, you know, they, they might still be alive, then, you know, you, you make every effort to try and help them. The reality was, of course, that they weren't alive, that they died instantly. And when that hull collapsed and collapsed catastrophically and without warning, uh, it did exactly what many of us feared it would do, which is, you know, uh, fail, fail catastrophically and fail unexpectedly. And, And that's because the material that it was made from was not appropriate for that application. It was a capricious material that over time was weakening with every cyclic use that hull was getting weaker. Imagine if I told you that every time you drove in your car, you know, it was getting, it was degrading in in its safety and its performance. And that at one point, you know, you aren't going to be able to hit the brakes or, Mm. you know, something like that. You know, it would, it would definitely be something that might call into question the appropriateness of that design. What needs to be changed, though, on a regulatory level? Uh, you know, how do governments police this? How do these agencies police this? What, what are the lessons out of OceanGate for the, for the industry? And what rules don't exist right now that need to exist? I think the, the, the simple change that needs to be made and that has to be made, should be made, is that we insist on accreditation, on certification, on classification society compliance with any craft that's carrying human beings into the deep sea. That's it. You insist on that and and it will be safe. Basically make vehicles like that illegal effectively uh, yeah, to they, be taking I mean, people look, in. Nobody can stop an individual from building something like that you know, in their garage and going out and, and operating. There's a whole group of people that, that build these type of craft. And you know, I think if you build it and you're operating it and you're putting your own life at risk, that's an entirely different scenario to building something and getting 
members of the of the general population to climb in it, assure them that it's safe, and and take them diving. I mean, as I said, it it changes fundamentally when you're inviting people to to join you in this craft, and and I think it's then incumbent upon you to hold yourself and and you know the equipment that you're operating to a higher standard. Just for perspective here, how deep were they and the crafts that you build at Triton? How deep do they go? So the deepest diving sub that we build will dive to 36,000 feet or 11,000 meters. That, by the way, is the deepest place in the ocean. That's the Marianas Trench. That's the Marianas Trench. And by the way, the sub that we built has made 20 dives to, to that depth. And it's made over 100 dives between 6,000 and ten and 11,000 meters, which is the Hadal zone, from 20,000 to 36,000 feet. The Titanic lies at 3,700 meters, uh, about 12,600 or 700 feet, about one third of, of that depth. So we, we built a, an accredited sub, fully certified, classed uh, by DNV that goes to, to 36,000 feet. In fact, I'm very proud of the fact that on that certificate, it says unlimited diving depth, any ocean. And I don't believe there's ever been a certificate issued like that before. And how many people can get in your crafts? Just two. <laughs> two people. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's small, uh, but that's partially a function of how deep that you're going. I mean, the, the pressures at, at, you know, that depth are crushing, you know, 16,000 PSI, uh, 1,100 bar if you're a metric person. Translate 16,000 PSI to the average person. So 16,000 PSI. Here's a great way to describe. In fact, I had an author ask me this one time. So we're all familiar with a 747 jumbo jet, big aircraft. One of those full of fuel weighs something like three quarters of a million pounds. Big, heavy, clunky machine. I wouldn't say clunky. That's probably not fair. It would take 292 fully fueled jumbo jets piled on top of the sphere, the, the, the human occupied capsule of our Triton 36002 to equal the pressure that it's at, at 36,000 feet. So several hundred jumbo jets sitting on top of your craft. That's what you build for. That's the kind of pressure we're talking about. Like think, uh, I don't know, Eiffel Tower on your big toe, that kind of thing. <laughs> Can't even imagine. Um, <laughs> you've built about 25 crafts so far? That's right. Who's buying these crafts? Well, our clientele are predominantly private yacht owners uh, and they buy them to put them on their vessels and then take them any place in the world they might want to go and explore. And imagine that, that you've got this machine that when you get to some interesting place, allows you to not just do terrestrial exploration, you know, go ashore and you know, climb a mountain or whatever, but to be able to go underwater, in some cases thousands or tens of thousands of feet to see what lies beneath the sea. I think it's interesting that it took this long, but it's exciting to see how enthusiastic people have become about owning a, a sub, owning a human-occupied vehicle. Are they learning to, to pilot these things themselves, or are there pilots they have to hire to pilot these things? We can teach anyone to pilot the sub. It's not difficult. I'd love to say you have to be like super brilliant, but I'm not that brilliant, and uh, it's really not difficult. In fact, Subs are incredibly simple to operate. They're easy to maintain, they're reliable, they're fun, they're exciting, and they have to be. If you're putting something like that into the punishing kind of environment of the deep sea, you have to build things that are simple and reliable and incredibly tough and robust. And that's what we do. And to teach someone how to operate one is not difficult. And I could spend an afternoon with somebody and they could pilot a sub. To become a good pilot, though, just like if you want to become a good aircraft pilot, it's more than just knowing how to make it go up and down and backwards and forwards. It's understanding how it works, knowing what to do if something goes wrong, how to fix it if you break something. And that's really where the training comes in. And we provide that training. Uh, we have trained some clients, but mostly there's crew members that come to our facility. They participate in the final assembly of the sub so they can really learn about what makes it tick and how it works. And we go through schematics and we show them how to rebuild things and how to test things. 
And then they watch as the sub is commissioned and they get involved in the commissioning process. And eventually then we integrate it onto the vessel and then they're, they're taught how to operate it from that vessel. And you learn all the sort of unique things about it. But uh, yeah, most of our clients are private owners. Some of our customers are doing fantastically interesting things with their subs though. They're making documentaries, they're underwriting really ambitious science expeditions, incredible exploration expeditions. And I'm super proud of the fact that we build the equipment that makes all of that possible. What's the price tag these days? Are you able to say? Well, they vary. We have a wide range of products, starting with our smallest sub that just carries a single person and goes down 3,300 feet. That's about two and a half million dollars. Our deepest diving sub, the one that goes to 36,000 feet, is uh, closing in about 37, 37 and a half million dollars. But the majority of our products are clustered in the in the four and a half to six and a half or seven million dollar range. So obviously, if you're looking to purchase one of these, you have to have a certain amount of wealth. To the average person, how far are we from you know students or people being able to you know rent one for a day? At, is the price point coming down gradually when it comes to uh, this type of technology? Do you see that happening in order to allow more folks who don't have that many zeros in their bank account to be able to access this sort of thing? Well, unfortunately, the price point isn't coming down because these things are extraordinarily complex to build and design and engineer. They say they have to go through this very uh, arduous and, and expensive process of accreditation. And as a consequence, they are necessarily expensive. They, they have to be because they're expensive to build. There, there are a number of tourist submarines around the world that you can pay a ticket and, and go for a dive. And I hope that there, that's going to continue. And there's going to be maybe a trend to not just limit the diving to 50 meters, you know, diving depth, but that, you know, to extend it to where we can take people a little bit deeper into some of the more exciting places in the ocean. As far as, you know, being able to afford one, you know, having one that, you know, anybody could buy. I, unfortunately, I don't I don't see that happening. Uh, and you know, it's just like I don't think there's really an accredited sub or an accredited helicopter or an accredited aircraft or helicopter that you could buy that is going to be inexpensive. I think, unfortunately, to build a machine like that, that's that's certified and, and accredited is is expensive. And as a consequence, yeah. Not everybody can afford them, which is too bad. I mean, you know, I get to dive in them, but uh, I don't own one myself. You know, I get to, I get to go with my clients. Yeah. And, you know, I, I commission the subs together with this brilliant team of people that I get to work with every day. And that, by the way, remains the thing that interests me most about my business. I love building these machines. I love introducing people to the the wonder and beauty of the deep sea because you cannot help but enjoy looking at the reactions of people when they when they climb out after their first dive you know the things that they say and you know how it's changed you know their thinking uh, it's it's wonderful I, I wish I could get more people in them because I, I guarantee you you'd love it and you'd maybe not be afraid of it how long does it take you to build one of these from start to finish? It depends on the model and and it depends on our pipeline, you know, how busy we are. But usually it's anywhere from 12 to 24 months to, to build a sub. Obviously, it's a little longer if it's a new sub that we have to do a lot of design and engineering and, and one time, you know, sort of non-recurring engineering where you have to build tooling and so on. But once you've built one and you're building multiples of, of a design, it becomes a little bit easier. How much of the deep ocean, do we have a sense of what percent of the seafloor is explored? I've heard all kinds of figures bandied about, but I know it's a lot less than 10%. I think it's even less than 5%. So that leaves a lot of room for new discoveries and exciting opportunities for anybody. I mean, that's kind of the thing that I I, I believe this must be the thing that resonates with, with someone that buys a sub this idea, this notion that you climb in it, you put it in the water and you go underwater and you are most likely, almost certainly seeing something that nobody else has ever seen before. I mean, 
I don't know what could be more interesting, more fun than than that. There are parts of this planet that still human beings, no human being has set their eyes on. Yeah, I mean, vast areas of our planet that haven't been explored. You know, we, we did this ex- expedition in, in 2019 called the Five Deeps Expedition, where we dived to the deepest point, as I said, in each of the five oceans. That had never been done before. I mean, just that is extraordinary. Some of those trenches, nobody, no human being had ever been down in, in, in them and, and seen them. And what we need to be doing isn't just, you know, I mean, that's great because you're setting records and all that sort of stuff. But what you really need to be doing is doing sustained exploration in these in these remote parts of our ocean. Yeah. What are we learning that has like a practical benefit to us potentially? So I'll give you a great example. Somebody shared an article with me the other day about some type of a microbe found in the deep sea, the very part of the deep sea that we're talking about mining, by the way. And this microbe, they've determined that it is incredibly effective at killing glioblastoma cells. So brain cancer. There could be a cure for cancer at the bottom of our ocean. There could be. There could be solutions to our energy problems, solutions to our uh, food problems. There's all kinds of things for us still to learn. And I I urge people to, to think about, and young people in particular, think about an oceanic career. Maybe not, don't go the route I did with diving school and all that, or working on a rig as a diver. But I think being in the ocean, getting involved in things related to the ocean uh, is something that we desperately need on this planet. We need to be taking better care of our own world. And most of that world is water. We had Paul Nicklin on this podcast a couple months ago. There you go. Amazing photographer. Wow. Amazing photographer. Also a lover of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and some incredible explanations. We had he, uh, him and his wife on just talking about what they, they've seen that, you know, like the, you know, blowing my mind with the impact of whales on CO2 in the atmosphere and how like we honestly, if we stopped killing whales and really tried to help the whale population, the impact that would have on this planet environmentally. Yeah, I just think there are so many things uh, for us to still learn from the ocean. And there's a lot of people much smarter than me and more accomplished, you know, scientists and so on. I'm not. I'm a I'm a a sub builder. And uh, you talk yourself down too much, Patrick. No, but I I love what I do. And I get to build these great machines that allow people to film and explore and, and do scientific research, which is the greatest result of all. When you know that, you know, I look at the things, for example, that, that Ray Dalio and his organization OceanX are doing. It's fantastic. Uh, it's inspirational. Like I was aboard his ship, the Ocean Explorer recently, and you go aboard it and it kind of gives you a hope for humanity. You know, you walk on board that ship, you feel like you've stepped into the future and you suddenly think, isn't it wonderful that there are human beings in this world that care enough about what's happening, that they're willing to devote significant resources to helping us better understand it, to funding ambitious science and, and filming expeditions so that we can not only learn stuff, but that we can take what we've learned and share it with, uh, with the broader human family. Because that's how you're going to get engagement. You know, I don't know if you are a documentary watcher, but I am. And I don't know if you watched Blue Planet. Yes. Did you know 4 billion people watched that? So if you want to have an impact, one of the best things you can do, because not everybody can dive in that sub, but if you document people diving in that sub and then you share it with others, then I guarantee you, you're going to inspire people. You're going to, you're going to create a whole generation of people who, who share this interest in, fascination with, devotion to the ocean. That's certainly what happened to me. As a kid, I used to sit in front of the TV on Sunday and watch Cousteau. And I know I wasn't alone. A lot of people did. In fact, if you talk to most people who are passionate about the ocean, you know, somewhere in there is the story about watching, you know, the Cousteau series. Or Cousteau, the, and now I think is is a grandson or great-grandson. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it continues generation by generation when that family... Or, or maybe it's, you know, watching films that, that Jim Cameron's made, or maybe in, in my case, you know, reading books by people like Dr. Joe McGinnis, who is, a, who is an incredibly brilliant man and mm-hmm. somebody who also passionately in love with the ocean. Um, you know, I think of 
recently, you know, and I, again, I'm not making a plug for, for, for anyone here, but there's a book that was just written, published by Susan Casey, brilliant book called The Underworld. I see it behind you. I think it's right behind yeah, it you. It is. Yeah, I put it there yeah. on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> because people need to read that book. It's a brilliant book. And it talks about all the myths, you know, all of the history and the the misconceptions that existed that basically made people afraid of the sea and made them not want to go down and see what was there Mm -hmm. and how we've started to overcome that. And then the incredible feats of engineering and acts of bravery, you know, the early pioneers and the, and the diving that they did. Uh, I think of, you know, the, the, the Trieste and the dives they did in 1960 and how, uh, what a pioneering effort that was and how brave those guys were to do that without the benefits of all the tools we have today. We have so much more technology. The ability that we have today to produce a vehicle that can go to full ocean depth is, I mean, it's just, it's in a completely different plane, you know? I wanted to get your perspective before we go here, Patrick, on the state of the oceans. You've been diving since the 70s. You know, there's a lot of talk of climate change. We've, we've seen the records breaking this year in Florida, in particular, where you are in terms of the warmth uh, of the ocean at record levels. Through your journeys these past few decades, what are some of the observations that you've made? What are you witnessing happening out there below the water? Well, certainly there's no question that, you know, our presence is ubiquitous in the ocean. I mean, there's evidence of, of humanity everywhere, even in the deepest and most remote trenches. Yeah. What did you find down there? Well, we saw all kinds of stuff, you know, that, that was down there. I think there were plastic bags and, and, and things of that nature. So the plastic bags have made it down to the Marianas Trench. I know it's not a, not a great, uh, it's not a great outcome. And, and I think we do have to pay attention to the fact that you know, we are the caretakers and we have a responsibility to do a better job and we can, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm a glass half full guy, right? I'm, in fact, I think my, my, uh, my client, Victor described me as a relentless optimist. I don't think it was intended as a compliment though, <laughs> <laughs> but I am, I am a, I am an optimistic person by nature. And I, I think, human beings have a tremendous capacity to solve problems and to come up with innovative ideas and solutions. And if we could just devote a fraction of that intellect, intelligence, and those brilliant ideas and how we could be better caretakers of this planet, then we could change the trajectory that we're on. So, you know, without getting too philosophical, I I believe that We have the capacity to do it. My hope is that we just need the will. And one of the great ways to create that will is to get people more engaged with the natural world and seeing the effects of our own activities. So whether it's pollution in the deep sea or the things that are happening terrestrially, when when people see it and they, they are confronted by it, and then they start to think about how we could change it and combat it, uh, that, that, gives us a chance to do something incredible rather than looking for another planet. I think we should be, we keep looking for them, but they all happen to be a few light years away. And when you actually translate the light years, you're like, I won't see it. (laughs) Far as I can tell, this planet is pretty fantastic and that we really have a, a duty of care responsibility to look after it. You know? So I hope that in some way, the machines that we create, that connect people viscerally with the deep sea will will uh, encourage people to take care of it better and and to think about ways that we could reverse the things that we're doing and, and change that trajectory that we're on. No better way to go out here, Patrick. Thank you so much. It's always good to be talking to a uh, optimist, <laughs> especially somebody who works in the news and sees so many negative headlines on a daily basis. But yeah. I appreciate how candid you were, the perspective you bring here, a very unique perspective, because the vast majority of humanity, 99.9999%, have not gotten to see the things that you've gotten to see. Yeah. Well, I hope I could change that in some way. And maybe it's just by seeing it in a documentary, but... Uh, I guarantee you more people see it and more people will become interested in it and care, start caring about it. So thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and for your you know, very interesting questions. Thank you, man. 
All right, I want to thank Patrick Leahy again for that incredible conversation, the perspective that he provided here on a news story we were all following in June, uh, but was worthy of uh, turning back to to get some more perspective. You can learn more about his company over at tritonsubs.com. That is T-R-I-T-O-N subs, S-U-B-S dot com. All right, as we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium. If you like what we're doing here, you like this extra content, and frankly, you like what we're doing every day with the podcast, with the newsletter, with the Instagram feed, supporting Mo News Premium helps us keep that going and growing, helps support us growing our team and our coverage. And you also get access to members-only content on a special Instagram feed and a special members-only podcast feed. Right now, you can get Mo News Premium for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months with the annual package. You can also try us out with a 30-day free trial. You can do that over at mo.news slash premium. Use the code Trial. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.